Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize this about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. You saw thousands of people along the rail line just standing there to say goodbye to Bobby Kennedy. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I remember it so well where, you know, I was like, hello, hi, Susie, hi, it's LD. I was like, oh, hi, Lyle, what's up? I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds. Our guest today is the legendary guitarist, Steve Cropper. Steve is an artist, a producer, a writer, and occasionally an actor. I first saw him more than 40 years ago when he was on stage at Red Rocks, with the legendary Blues Brothers band, and he stars in the movie alongside John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. Incredible scenes in that movie with Steve and Ray Charles. He rose to prominence in the 60s, first with the Marquis and then with Booker T and the MGs. Before he was 20 years old, he had the number one hit in the world in Green Onions. He's worked with everybody in music, from George Harrison to Tom Petty, to Bob Dylan, to Aretha Franklin, and for many years, Booker T and the MGs were the preferred house band at all the big rock shows. He has amazing stories he shares with us here on Great Minds. You won't hear these anywhere else. It was a joy to speak with Steve. He's a gent. Enjoy Steve Cropper. We sure did. So... Even if you weren't born yet, you probably will recognize and can name this song in these two notes. Okay, so I'm going to start it with this, just two notes. Then we'll play the rest of it. Somebody asked me one time about, how did you learn how to play guitar? I said, Jesus, it's really easy. You just learn one note, that's all you got to do, and then you learn to play it in different places. <laughs> so I bet y'all can name this song in two notes. Here we go. You ready? So, Steve, uh, we're going to go back. We're going to jump around a little bit because you've had such an incredible career. And I, I want to start. I know you were born in Missouri and moved to Memphis. And you got your first, first guitar when you were about 14. How did you get how did you get that guitar cuz there was no Amazon back then This is a true story I mowed yards shined shoes and set bowling pins so I had it $17 to buy the guitar And this is a true story as, as well I was telling the story one night and my mom says you know if I hadn't lent you that quarter you'd never been a musician I said what are you talking about mom she says well you sat on that front porch for 2 or 3 hours waiting for that truck to turn the corner because you knew when the Sears truck come around it had the guitar in it and so I had exactly $17 for the guitar, and it came in a box, not a, not a case and all that sort of stuff. And they said, that'll be a 25-cent delivery fee. I went, what? <laughs> I told my mom, I said, Mom, they want 25 cents. And she said, if I hadn't lent you that quarter, you'd have never been a musician. She's probably right. <laughs> Steve, one of the bands that you helped get inducted into the Rock Hall of Fame has really been lost in history. Loman Pauling, lead singer and a great band, the Five Royales. Let's talk about them. 
Well, that all started in high school. And uh, our school, we went. We all went to Mexico, and I went to school with Donald Duck Dunn. He and I have been together since the sixth right. grade. So we went through junior high and all that stuff together, and high school graduated together, and we danced. And so Memphis, like any other place, had a its own version of a dance show like American Bandstand. And we used to watch that all the time. Well, one of the main groups we used to dance to was the Five Royals. And so Duck and I worked for a guy in uh, loading trucks on Saturday. And we heard that they were going to be upstairs from where we were working that Saturday night. And so we asked our boss, could we get off early so we can go home and change clothes and come back and see the Five Royals? And we got to see them live. I never looked back. One of the greatest shows I ever saw. And your album in 2007 dedicated all the great music of the Five Royals with B.B. King and Steve Winwood and Brian May and Sharon Jones, the late Sharon Jones, Betty LeVette. Their sound is really credited as the predecessor to soul. Tell us about that. Well, (laughs) it's pretty simple. I mean, the song was dedicated to the one I love. And I said, well, that's a little bit too long to push an album how about just dedicated and it, it dedicated to all my uh, i guess superheroes that i look at most of them i had on the album the guys that i played with and done sessions with and saw their shows and all that So at a very young age, I guess, was Royal Spades, was that your first band? Yeah, that was out of high school. And, uh, you know, you can explain it, and it makes a lot of sense. But to the normal people, average person, I say normal people, average person, it means something else. I don't know why, but it does. And in in high school, we were ardent uh, fans of playing poker. Now it's a big thing. Texas Hold'em and all that's on TV all the time. Well, that's what it was. A Royal Spade Plus is the highest hard hand you can have in poker. A Royal Spade. It beats all the other three flushes. Hard spades and diamonds and just uh, clubs and diamonds. It beats them all. So spades is one. It's, you know, if you got a Royal Spade Plus, you beat all other Royal Spade Royal Flushes. And that's what it was about. And we were having jackets made up with the cards and all that. And so I guess the song last night came out earlier, earlier than they expected. So they said, we were still a Royal States. Then they said, you got to change your name. <laughs> so we changed our name. One of the guys, and I forget who it was. It might've been Wayne Jackson, trumpet player. He said, uh, you know, they had a, mar- it was an old theater that we're at, at Stacks. And they had a marquee up front, just like all movie theaters have a big marquee. And he says, let's call ourselves the marquees. Well, Mark, he basically has a French spelling. And I said, in those days, there was the Del Mars, the Mar this, the Mar that, and whatever. And, and I said, can we change it to the Mar Keys, Mar Dash Keys? Because last night was a keyboard song. Yeah, and it seemed to work out pretty good. One year out of high school, having a number three record in the world. Pretty good. And then the following year, we had the number one record with Booker T and the MGs and the Green Onions. And it's still going today. <laughs> so talk about uh Packy Axton, who I guess was in the Marquise with you and Estelle and Jim Stewart and the first time you met them and uh and the Stax family. 
Well, I, the, the connection there is simple in my mind, but maybe not a lot of people. I used to pick up Charlie at, uh, at his house and uh, go to Messick. That's where I met Charles. And uh, I can tell you why he's in the band. <laughs> but I knew him before he got in the band. And he came running up to me one day and he says, you know, Steve, I hear you guys have a great band. And I said, well, thank you, man. He said, I want to be in your band. And I said, we're not looking for anybody. What do you do? He said, I play saxophone. I said, oh, really? How long have you been playing? He said, I've been taking lessons for three months. <laughs> Man, I'm going to jump over backwards to hire him. <laughs> so anyway, he turned out to be pretty good, but a little better than pretty good. But he died at a young age, unfortunately. And I used to pick him up all the time. And uh, the reason I got to, to know, the way I got to know Estelle, she was always ironing a shirt for him when I'd come over there. <clears throat> so that was what was going on. I knew the whole family well. And before before Stax was Stax, it was Satellite and then became Stax? Yeah. And uh, one of those same deals, uh, basically, we've been Satellite forever. And Jim had. And he, you know, released country and R&B and uh, you know, pop and whatever, different stuff. And uh, Jim Stewart was, was a good musician. He was a country fiddleman, fiddle player, played in a band. And uh, he got a letter one day from a lawyer saying, cease and desist kind of thing. There's already a satellite records. I think it was in California somewhere. So he said, he went to Estelle and said, we got to change our name. So they set up with, I don't know how many pots of coffee, and came up with S.T. Stewart, A.X. Axton Stacks, S-T-A-X. And they just in, in, implied it was a stack of records, which, you know, that's what they did the artwork with. I don't know. And now, now they've got the, what these potato chips are called stacks. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! That is what it is. And and I guess the original lineup of Booker T and the MGs before Duck was in the band in '65, it was Louis Steinberg was the bass player. Correct, and Louis, you know Louis Steinberg, bass player, played on last night, and so did Duck. Different different thing. Duck did an overdub on about two bars of it, and uh, Louis played on Green Onions as well. Now, Duck was one of my best friends. I think I told you earlier in the interview that uh, he and I have been together since the sixth grade in school. So we played ball together and hung out together and went movies together and all that kind of stuff. So we, we were just good chumming buddies. So I really was an instigator in trying to get him into the Booker T and the MGs band. <clears throat> well, Louis and Booker had a major falling out. I don't know over what, but anyway, they had a falling out. So he was bought out of his contract. He probably wouldn't do that today, but in those days, he was glad, probably glad to get it. And Louis, by profession, was a painter, house painter. And that's what he did for years, and he finally retired. But he also played bass. His whole, He came from a musician's family, guitar players and so forth. <clears throat> and uh, Wilbur Steinberg was a great musician, and Louis was a great musician. And uh, the greatest thing Louis ever said, we were sitting in the studio one day waiting on a session to start. And he said, Carpet. He said, you know, those bass players are all over the place. And I go, yeah. And he said, you know, they're still looking for it. I done found it. And he started playing that old B-flat walking blue. Doom, doo, 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 doo. Oh, <laughs> yeah, man. you found it, all right. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about 1962 and two songs right. in particular that came out that year. And I guess by then you were the Stax A&R man. So let's talk about Green Onions and let's talk about These Arms of Mine. Two incredible all records. Right. <laughs> well, uh, Green Onions is, is a fruit like everything else. And we were just jamming and waiting for an artist to come in. And this was on a Sunday afternoon. 
And Jim Stewart had never asked us to come in on the weekend. And ever. This was at first. Well, the guy we were supposed to cut had sang all night long. And they said he showed up at the record shop up front. But we never saw him. He never came back in the back. And he was real hoarse from singing all night long. And staying up late and whatever. And so they told me, I said, yeah, he showed up. But y'all never saw him. So we were just wasting time playing some blues. And Jim was all ready to go to record wise. So he just reached over, heard what we were doing. And uh, reached over and uh, hit record and recorded it. We get through, we're laughing and carrying on. And it's just a filler song. And I think we wound up naming it. It was on the flip side of Grinnell. It's called Behave Yourself. And uh, he said, hey, guys, come in here and listen to that. And we went, you recorded that? <laughs> and we're just thinking he's crazy. But anyway, so we went up there. And he said, and we listened to it. And it was all right. And he said, you know, if we decided to put something like this out, if you got anything, you put on the flip side. In those days, there was an A and B side of every record. It, had a, it was 45 with an A side and a B side. And uh, we just looked dumbfounded. I mean, nobody had anything. And I looked at Booker and I said, Booker, you played me a riff for a song about two weeks ago. I don't know if you remember or not. And he said, well, come on down to the organ. I'll play a couple of them and see if one of them is it. And one of them happened to be Green Onions. I said, that's it. Mm-hmm. Three cuts later, we had the record, as you know, as Green Onions. <laughs> Amazing. And my understanding, it was it was played on the radio before and was a hit before the song even had a name. Well, it was a demanded hit. So I took it down to a friend of mine who was disc jockey, Reuben Morrison, on his drive time. And uh, I said, I went, we did something Sunday and I had Scotty Moore cut me a little dub on it yesterday. And this was a Tuesday morning. And I said, I want you to hear it. And if you think it's any good, maybe we'll try to do something with it. So he plays the intro and backs it up. And I said, what, you don't like it? He said, no, I just want to hear it again. And what he did, he put it out on the air when he did that. And while it was playing, the phone started lighting up. I don't know who it is. I don't know what it is, but we're going to find out <laughs> that kind of a thing. And he was telling his people he'd hang up and another call would come in. I don't know. I don't know, but we'll find out. Boom. <laughs> so he gets through playing it and says, Cropper, what is that? And I said, I told you something we cut on Sunday. He said, man, this <laughs> the phone is ringing off the wall here. So. Anyway, I have to leave the, the uh, studio, the radio station, and I go to the studio. I mean, to the, well, the studio, but the satellite record shop. That's where I had a job originally. And uh, Mrs. Axon says, Steve, what have you done? I know you had something to do with this. The phone has been ringing off the wall. I want to know what Reuben Washington was playing this morning. And it was Green Onions. <laughs> we hadn't even named it. So she calls Jim at the bank. And he was still working at the bank and said, when you take your lunch break, you better get down here. we got something going on we're going to have to deal with. So he hears it and hears the story. And he said, call the guys in. we got to get a name for a group. we got a name for this record and get it out. And we did. And this was a Tuesday afternoon. I think I got in the car on a Friday morning with a box of 25 records. In Bill Biggs' car, he, he worked, uh, he called on the jukebox operators in Arkansas and Mississippian places and we went on and I he dropped me off at the radio station. I'd walk in with a couple of records and asked to see the NR director and <laughs> and that was it. A program director and then uh, you know, they they were glad to see anybody. Here's this snot nosed kid, barely out of high school <laughs> with the record on the drop. So that's how we broke it. We broke it in a, in a week's time. And <clears throat> where did the name come from and who named it? Well, uh Funny story on that one. Louis Steinberg said, let's name it Onions. 
And we go, okay, why do you want to name an onion? She said, because that's the stankingest music I ever heard in my life. And I said, maybe <laughs> Mr. Goody Two-Shoes said, well, you know, onions has sometimes has a negative side. It makes people cry. Some people get upset stomach from it and all that. And I said, what about green onions? Everybody puts green onions on their plate, you know, for, for lunch at all. And he said, yeah, let's name it green onions. And that's where I came from. <laughs> and also that year, Otis Redding's first song, first song recorded at Stax, These Arms of Mine. Do you remember the very first time you met Otis and heard him sing? Well, all of that, yeah. <laughs> at least in my mind, I do. Uh, Jerry Wexler had called Jim Stewart and said, uh, we've got this band that had a hit record and we can't follow up with it. And in those days, that was a big, big thing you had to do, follow up a hit. And I'm not sure we did it with Green Onions or Last Night, but we tried. Mm-hmm. I think Last Night, the night before, came out as a second record or something like that. Anyway, uh, we were commissioned to cut John, uh, uh, Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers. I'll get the Pine Toppers right here in a minute. And uh, we're waiting on them, waiting on them outside. And, uh, and I, I want to say we went outside to smoke a cigarette. I think we just went out to get some fresh air because there were no restrictions on smoking in those days. And uh, so we're, there's a bunch of us all standing outside waiting, waiting on these guys from Alabama to show up or Georgia. And uh, this Cadillac pulls up and I go, that's got to be them in the Cadillac. And this big tall guy gets out from the driver's side and walks around to the back and unlocks the trunk, starts pulling out amps and cords and microphones and all that. And I go running down there and said, hey man, we got our own mics in there. You don't need any of those mics. He's setting up like he's setting up for a gig. And I thought he was just a roadie, the driver, whatever. Well, come to find out that uh, Johnny had been picked up on something that didn't have a driver's license and wasn't allowed to drive. So he got Otis, who was the singer, and Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers to drive because we had the session. And uh, so we had worked all most of the day on trying to come up with something, just didn't come up with the right thing that we were happy with. So Jim says, well, let's just all break early, guys, and, and come back tomorrow and try it again. And uh, most of the guys were leaving, and uh, Duck reminded me. He said, you come screaming outside, and I was putting my bass in the trunk. He said, get your bass back out. we got to cut this demo real quick. <laughs> so uh, Otis Redding, as you know Otis Redding, had been bugging our drummer, Al Jackson, all day long about he wanted one, one of us to hear him sing. And he said, well, Steve is the A&R director, and he listens to music, but he only does it on Saturday. So the chances of him here, you're probably slim and none. So at the end of the day, since we had broken early, uh, Al comes to me and he said, you know that guy that's been bugging me all day long that I, you told me to, <clears throat> to forget it, that you wouldn't be able to hear him? He said, he's still bugging me. Can you take five seconds out of your time and listen to this guy? And I said, yeah, I tell him to come down the piano. So I go down to the piano and he walks down, this big tall guy. And I said, okay, show us what you got, play something. He said, I don't play any piano. I play some church sports. He said, can you play piano? I said, no, but I... I can play enough to ride with. He said, can you play me some of the church chords? Well, I was just six, eight triplets. And I started playing that, and he opened up with these arms of mine. I went, oh, my God. Arms of mine, they are lonely, lonely and fielding He said, well, you don't like it? I said, man, I love it. Hang on. I got to get Jim stirred. I, I went and grabbed Jim. was still in the control room. I said, Jim, you got to get out here and hear this guy. So he, 
after you know, much tussle about it, uh, I finally talked Jim into coming down to hear him. He didn't want to hear anybody sing. He heard Otis's voice. He said, call the guys. we got to get this down on tape real quick. <laughs> so that's how that all started. The next morning, instead of trying to cut a B-side or any side for Johnny Jenkins, we were cutting a B-side for these arms of mine. And Johnny, I played piano on it, and Johnny Jenkins played guitar on it. I think on the next day, Booker played. But I played the piano on these arms of mine, the little trippers, and Johnny Jenkins played guitar. Everybody thinks that's me playing guitar, but it's not. It's Johnny Jenkins. And you worked with so many great singers at Stax. When you when you look back on those days, you're laying awake at night, and you worked with you know Rufus Thomas and Carla and Eddie Floyd and Wilson yep. Pickett and Sam and They're Dave. What what gives you what gives you a big big smile? Is there one or two in particular that you look back on those days, and 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 what really you know what really comes to mind there? Well, I mean, there's a lot of great memories that I have, but the thing is about the artists themselves, they all stand alone. They're all so good, and they never were in competition with each other, record-wise or other on stage or not. It didn't happen. They didn't do that in those days. <clears throat> and everybody was in it together, and they were cheering. When somebody else got a hit, they were cheering them along. We want to introduce this great singer now, da-da-da-da, and you could just hear it. I mean, a lot of times they would get artists to introduce and when they didn't have an MC or something, then introduced the next act. And they were just as proud of those people as if they were own kids or something. It was amazing. <clears throat> so what can I say? I've got a lot of great memories. And, uh, you know, uh, every one of them is different. Some of the stuff we did with Sam and Dave is absolutely phenomenal. And it's never to be repeated. You couldn't you couldn't copy it if you wanted to. Some of the stuff we did with Mavis Staples, <clears throat> with Carla, with Rufus, one of a kind things, never to be redone. You you can copy them all day long, and you never come up with anything better. It just doesn't happen that way. <clears throat> and what we learned what we learned at Stacks as producers, songwriters, and musicians, what we learned at Stacks, it's so hard to copy yourself. It's so easy for somebody else to do it, but it's very hard for you to do it yourself. You just can't can't do it you can't get the energy up for it i can't <clears throat> so it's very hard to repeat stuff you can start new like the difference between let's say the marquees and last night and green onions and booker and mgs it was only a year later two to, two totally different energies writing their music just totally different <clears throat> and i always say something about otis otis made me play stuff on a guitar that i never even think of myself such an in- incredible body of work otis had and the only lived till about 26 beyond working with him in the studio at Stax, I know you also toured with him and weren't you in the band in 67 that was at the Monterey pop festival? Yeah. And I think we did something that time uh, when we went to the Stax boat review and then re- repeated that at the Monterey, that was the first time that I can think of that an artist actually worked with a band that played on their record. It's been a real groovy day and a great evening and here. Let's bring on with a big hand, Mr. Otis Redding. <laughs> right. Now that's changed something in the last few years, but in those days, no, not heard of because studio musicians stayed studio musicians. Now, when we got talked into going to Europe, 
we were asked to do more. And we said, there's no way. We were already backed up about four months of projects. And we were only over there. We did 17 shows. I forget how many nights we were there, but about a month, not quite. We did 17 shows, the Stax Bowl Tour, and the the songs that were backed up that needed to be mixed, overdubbed, and all that was ridiculous. It was just almost too much work. And uh, I remember one time uh, I had quit smoking. And we'd been somewhere on tour or something and uh, came back, and I had three songs to mix. And then about halfway through the first one, I said, golly, I don't know if I can keep, I, I don't know where, I, no way can I get to the other two songs. So I grabbed uh, <laughs> our backup engineer in those days and reached in my pocket and got some money. And I said, go across the street and get me a package of cigarettes. And he did, came back with him. And I don't know what it is, stimulus or something, but by the next morning, I walked out of that studio with all three mix and all three of them were hits. Who was on that Stax Vault review in that tour? Do you remember the acts that were on the tour with you? Well, yeah, most of it was Eddie Floyd. Um, I think Wilson started out. Sam and Dave was on there. Uh, Otis, of course, closed the show. And Sam and Dave put on shows like nobody would ever believe. Uh, they really were just dynamic, the dynamic duo. They would enter from two sides of the stage, separate sides of the stage. When they got in the middle, what I would say, all hell broke loose. And I remember we were in uh, Blackpool, England, and uh, cops just come up and infiltrated the stage, said, stop the show, stop the show. We went, are you guys crazy? What do you mean stop the show? Well, you continue the show, but those guys are going to have to stop dancing. What do you mean? That's their act. That's what they do. And the guy said, I want you to look up at the balcony. There was about an 18-inch crack in the balcony. And it was about to fall down with the crowd jumping up and down on us on that. So we said, okay, we see what you mean. <laughs> we, we lowered it down. And, <laughs> and on the Monterey show, the pop festival, it was Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, The Who, Jefferson Airplane. Yeah, the, the, the people on that show, the artists on that show was endless. Even though we, we went on there with just Otis. Well, we opened the same way we always did with the marquees. We started with Booker T and MGs, the Green Onions, and we'd have Wayne and them come out and, and do the marquee, do last night, and then the show would start. At the, except this time, it started with Otis rather than somebody else. So. And the MGs lineup, the original lineup going back, or I guess after Duck joined the band, and with, with Steinberg as well, you were groundbreaking in that you had two black musicians in Booker T and Al Jackson and two white musicians, yourself, Steinberg, and then Duck Dunn. Talk about that that era, and it wasn't too long after Black Axe could really only play the Chitlin circuit. But in those days, when you talk about that, that didn't happen then. That was just four guys playing together. Then they made them turn them black and white. Way later. It just didn't happen in those days. There was no color at stack, period. And it's hard to make people believe that because in people's minds, there's always been color. No, there hadn't either. There was never any color at stacks. We didn't look at each other as being a different color. Just didn't look at them that way. And a lot of those guys, I still don't. Eddie Floyd is just a brother of mine. He's not a black brother of mine. He's just a brother of mine. And that's the way we always felt. Duck felt that way, Al Jackson felt that way, and I think Booker still feels that way. (laughs) 
I want to talk about another album that you did in 1969 with Pop Staples and Albert King. Uh, Jam together. What a great record. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Those guys were just incredible. Two of the nicest guys you would ever want to meet in your whole life. And uh, the fact that they were musicians, and I know the difference between musicians and the love for music and and just regular people that are just great people because they enjoy life and, and all that sort of stuff. Well, Pops was one of those kind of guys, very strict and all that, but in his real life, he was one of the nicest guys you'd ever meet. And so was Albert King. The thing about Albert was he didn't trust anybody except people in the studio. And he loved Doc, Donald Duck Dunn and myself for some reason and the Stax people and the, you know, Al Jackson and Booker. And he just loved everybody. And I'll tell you why I think that's true is because he get, received his first actual royalty check from an album that we did on him. And uh, he'd always been cheated out of his money all his life, except that particular time he didn't. And I think uh, one of the big hits out of that was Laundromat Blues or one of them. And uh, he got a royalty check and stared at it for 15 minutes. He couldn't believe it. So I don't know. He held on to it for a long time before he actually put it in the bank. Cast it. That was great. That was a fun album. Oh, down in Tupelo, the flood down in Tupelo. <laughs> that's a good one. Talk about 1970 or so. I guess that's when you left Stax and went and created TMI and worked with acts like Rod Stewart and Tower Power and Jeff Beck. Was it was it politics at Stax with Al Bell? Is that is that what led to that? Well, no. I, I don't know the reason for that. There was, there was a lot of reasons that I left. And I let them all pile up until I finally just said, I can't take it anymore. <clears throat> now, I think our greatest achievement at TMI was a little record called Bump City with Tower Power. Let's go down to the nightclub. Now, we had other hits with Jeff Beck. We had a hit with Jeff Beck and, uh, you know, the other people we had hits with. Other people we tried to have hits with and didn't quite make it, but you know, people like Roy Ed should have made it, didn't make it. I don't know if that's the label's fault or what's whose fault, but the music was great. But the Tower of Power is still living today. I mean, it's still happening. That that music will never stop either. So it was great. It was a one of a kind thing. And uh, you know, they interviewed Jeff one time, and that was a real successful record. And he said they were interviewing him. So when are you gonna make another record of Memphis? He said never. <laughs> And then I moved over to Arden for a while, and I worked with uh, John Prine, Yvonne Elliman, who else did I work with? Two, three other artists. And uh, John Prine was the biggest, they were interviewing him, and they said, when are you going to make another record in Memphis? He said, never. Same thing Jeff Beck said. <clears throat> so even one of a kind. It is what it is. And just to jump back for a second, I read somewhere that uh, that – John Lennon and Paul McCartney were big fans of yours, and they wanted to come and record at Stax, and Brian Epstein wouldn't let him. Is that a true story? I wouldn't say that, but but Brian and I stayed pretty close on this, and he didn't think security was big enough. And I said, Brian, you've got to understand something. Memphis is totally different from any other place on this planet. They're not going to get uh, bombarded with fans and all that like like they do everywhere else they go. And I had them a a, a great place <clears throat> surrounded on a corner, surrounded by uh, iron fence, so the police could 
completely surrounded if they needed to. And he said, no, nope, would you mind coming to New York and doing this? And that, that's what they want me to do. And then he called me and he said, well, they've got almost all the album finished. Uh, maybe we'll wait for the next one. I said, okay. Well, I'm glad I didn't work on it because that album was a revolver album. <laughs> I think it would have come out different. Not Probably not as good, I don't think. And George, George had in mind exactly what he wanted, and he didn't need somebody else in his way. And let's talk now about one of the great joys and one of the first places I saw you as a young man. I was lucky enough, I'm 55 now, when I was 15, one of the first concerts I ever went to was seeing the Blues Brothers and you at Red Rocks. And talk about, you know, I know Willie Hall was one of the first members of the band who you worked uh, with. Uh, but talk about, you know, that era and working with John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. Well, I, you know, the Blues Brothers was a phenomenon. But I don't think we knew as musicians what it hit us. We didn't know how big it was. I think Acro knew how big it was. I think John knew how big it was, but we didn't know how big it was. And we just doing the duck and I were doing the same thing we did in high school. We didn't change anything. Maybe that's what worked. Maybe we just need to team up. I don't know. But uh, it wasn't as uh, what we did in the studio. We just did it. And it didn't come off to me as being as creative off the track as some of the other things that we did. I mean, a lot of things we did that we were known for, we really did leave the norm and, and, and experiment and do stuff. <laughs> With the Blues Brothers, we just played. But Belushi could do anything. <clears throat> he could say something or not say anything. He was just as funny if he kept his mouth shut and did as he opened it. Even though Dan Eckward wrote everything, pretty much that Belushi ever did, it's still, it just he was just a funny guy. He was just funny. He had the greatest heart, and I got to hang out with him a lot. And he never refused an autograph, never refused a fan. Guys were jumping out of cab windows, crossing the street in front of traffic, doing everything to get to jump. And I think with their, you know, obviously roots in comedy, I think a lot of people initially didn't understand just how great all the musicians were in that band. Well, it turned out that way. And uh, I think uh, the, the audience knew it before we did. <clears throat> so uh, we've heard a lot of those stories too. But uh, that was probably, I've done a lot of concerts. There were more well-known people backstage at those Blues Brothers concerts. I think we did nine dates. At the Universal Amphitheater. Everybody in Hollywood made it to the backstage somehow. <clears throat> One of those nights. And it was everybody. Everybody from Cher to you name it. Bob Black Sheep, that cast and crew came down. And the Beach Boys were there. It's just, it was just endless. Pretty amazing. That's when we finally started realizing maybe we're doing something right, guys. I don't know. Friday night, I watched the Blues Brothers movie again, probably the hundredth time. And all the cameos in there with John Lee Hooker and Ray Charles and uh, Aretha Franklin. It's, a, it's, it's an unbelievable film. And I watched your face. There were two close-ups and Shake Your Tail Feather and then Jailhouse Rock right at the end. And you sure look like you were having a good time. It doesn't get any better than that. So uh, one of the guys called me and said, I'm not sure they're paying us enough. I said, you know, I would pay them to be in this movie. <laughs> And that's a true story. <clears throat> they took it anyway. And, uh, you know, we were all compensated well for it. And the good news out of uh, John Belushi's heart, he gave us, gave Duck and I pieces of the album and all that sort of stuff. 
I mean, it's just the way he was. <clears throat> so he he sh- liked to share. And I remember when uh, a lot of people don't know this, and I'm not sure it's important, but they were generating over $2 million a day at one time, the two of them. And uh, Belushi's manager, Bernie Burlstein, told me that. <clears throat> so I guess it must be true. I don't know. Fantastic. And Steve, you became along and often with Duck and often with Booker T, sort of the favored house band for a lot of iconic shows. The Bob Dylan 30th show, the opening of the Rock Hall of Fame and artists like Aretha Franklin and Al Green and at the Dylan show, Clapton and George Harrison and and Tom Petty, Stevie Wonder. I guess that led to going out with Neil Young. You know, was there something that comes to mind? You say, man, that was a magic night. I really love that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I looked at Duck one time. I said, Duck, you and I have got to stop raising our hands. They'll say, do we have a volunteer to play? Yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> so we're doing that Dylan thing. And I said, man, that was a lot of songs. <clears throat> and Duck said, <clears throat> excuse me. He said, do you know how many songs we played on? I said, no. He said, I kept track of them, 27. <clears throat> we uh we play a song that's tossed the sheep. <laughs> Go on to the next one. 27 songs. Think about that. That's a lot of songs. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, about Otis and sitting on the dock of the bay. And, and I, I guess the song was cut three or four days before he passed. 45 years ago, Stax Records released a song we all know very well. Sitting on the dock of the bay can be heard everywhere, from the radio to YouTube to karaoke bars. The great singer-songwriter Otis Redding didn't live to hear that record, but the musical message lives on with his family. Let me tell you the reality. of A lot of publicity went out that that was the last thing that Otis cut. Well, it was, wasn't the last thing that he cut. It doesn't matter about that. The fact is that behind every session that we did, in a three-bit period, we would pull out Dock of the Bay because we knew that was the best thing we'd cut so far. And we'd listen to it and listen to it and listen to it. And Otis and I both agreed it's got to have something. We could put our finger on what it needed, but it needed something. And lo and behold, he goes down and we hadn't done anything yet. So we did finally agree that probably what it might need is backgrounds. And I said, Otis, if you can wait a week or two on this, the next artist that I'm going to be producing be the Staple Singers. I said, I haven't even asked them, but they'd be more than happy to sing on your one of your songs. And so I was going to put them on Dock of the Bay. Well, lo and behold, they said, we got to get something ready. It didn't have anything ready. And that was it. And uh, I don't know. I come up with the idea. Of, I, I was The last time I saw Otis, I was setting up to do the electric guitar overdubs because I played acoustic on the session. And we had gone to four-track by then, so we had some tracks to work with. And he said, well, I'll see you Monday. And this was Friday afternoon. <laughs> well, that never happened. And I, I had forgotten, too, that Booker T and MGs had a gig that Saturday night. <clears throat> so we were, all, we were all up there, snowed in, iced in, or whatever it was, and couldn't get out. And I remember Duck and I looked at each other. We're sitting on the ground, and we said, if we get a hold of Otis's pilot, Dick, he said, I, we said he'd get us out of here. Well, we didn't know he'd probably already gone down by that time. <clears throat> and that was ice related to that deal, too. So it is what it is, but, but we knew, and, uh, and I still next in the record and all that, I said, this thing needs something. I'd bring those guitar licks up and it didn't matter. And I said, no, it needs to be in this proper place. And I called a buddy of mine 
in the jingle business. He was an engineer, later became a very, very famous engineer and producer, Jimmy Gaines. And I called Jimmy and I said, Jimmy, you guys got any soundtrack albums over there? He said, Steve, that's what we're in the business for doing. I said, do you have any sound waves and seagulls? He said, hell yeah. And I said, well, I need some. He said, get over here. We'll make a loop of them. So we went over there and we got out the records. And in those days, you can make a loop. So Dock of the Bay was actually mixed on six track. All four tracks on the four track and two tracks on the two track machine. <laughs> four and two, six, any way you want to look at it. So I put the seagulls and the waves. Seagulls was on one track of the two track and the waves were, ocean waves were on the other side. And I had to trial and error starting the tape so you didn't hear the spice go by when I'd pull them up. And I only pull them up in one, one, one place. And Otis gave me that idea by clowning around in the studio trying to sound like a seagull. And I make the joke. I said, he sounds more like a dying crow than he did a seagull. <laughs> but it seemed to work. Sitting in the morning sun I'll be sitting when the evening comes And uh, so that was overdubbed and the electric guitar parts were overdubbed. The rest of it was all live. And uh, even Al, even Wayne Jackson, not Al Jackson, Wayne Jackson, trumpet player, reminded me, he said, if you remember, we had the horns all ready to go. And uh, they love working with Otis anyway. And uh, it went live. There was no overdubs on that. The only overdubs on Dock of the Bay, the electric guitar licks, the seagulls, and the waves. That's overdub. Everything else was all done live. So, so Steve, in, in 96, uh, Mojo in the UK named you the greatest living guitarist. What are the great guitar players that you, you've worked with so many with folks like Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and others? Who out there, you know, what are the great, great guitarists and sort of the great minds behind those guitars that you really love? Wow, that's a toughie. <laughs> so we talked about Loman Pollen earlier. I never did get to actually play with him. But I did copy some of his licks and and kind of pattern my style after what he I thought he thought. Uh, you know I played on albums of the best from BB King, you name it, and I played live with BB, and uh, they don't get much better than BB King. And uh, I, I don't think I ever played live with Jeff. I didn't even jam with him in the studio. Eric, I did, but uh, Jeff, I didn't. Jeff is such a phenomenal guitar player. And he only got better and better and better and better. And I watch his videos on TV sometimes. And I go, holy mackerel, that guy is really incredible. <laughs> so I didn't know. I got a call or Columbia got a call one time from Stevie Wonder. And he had demoed the song for Jeff Beck. And they told him, you know, I was producing Jeff Beck. And he said, I've got this great song for him, Superstition. So we go over to Electric Lady, Electric Lady Studios to listen to it. And while it's playing, I've been over to Steve. He was a friend of mine. I said, put horns on that and put it out. <laughs> I don't know if he did from that, but but I did do that. I, I will stick by that as long as I live. I literally did say that to him. And he came out as one of his biggest hits. Then I heard him bring Jeff up on stage one night and play the song. And I went, holy Michael, that was a Jeff Beck song. <laughs> but you bring up so many great musicians and artists. And I'd like to embellish on some of them a little bit more rather than just hit some high spots and get out, you know, it's, it's well, not let's, fair. Let's do that. I would love to do part two. And what, I, what I'd love to do to thank you is let's figure out a time and a place and I will take you someplace nice to play some golf and we could both, you know, watch we can, each, do that. We can watch each other look for balls in the woods that we're, that we're sure to lose. 
All right, well, Steve, I'll let you go. We'll do part two, and we'll no dig a, we'll dig a little deeper. But you stay healthy, and this has been an we'll absolute absolute joy. All right, man. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. Have a good one. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. An original music was by Ian Levy.